One of my favorite ways to unwind is by playing a game on my phone while I relax on the couch. And June's Journey is my new favorite as it combines several of my favorite things, finding hidden items, decor and design, and solving a murder. In June's Journey, you dive into June's captivating quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret while discovering the truth behind the unexplained death of her sister. As you uncover clues, you also get to build your own island estate with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. You get to collect scraps of information to fill your photo album and learn more about each character. You get to chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. So can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hello, the world. Today we have a little departure from our normal true crime cases. We wanted to tell you a scary story, and today's tale was written by my husband, Ryan Ellis, and written and performed by my sister, Courtney Eck. So sit back and get scared, because this is The X-Files. Growing up the quiet kid always leaves you with a lot to say as an adult. You can shout the kind of things you wouldn't dare whisper as a child. The only catch with shouting as an adult is hoping someone is actually listening. Whether you were quiet because of the fear, the shame, or the pain, hopefully you will listen to me now, knowing that as crazy as this story sounds, it all happened, and it is all very true. I don't talk too much even as an adult, so please hear me just this once before it's too late. Listen to my shout. We moved to the house for a fresh start. We were both going through big changes, my wife with her recovery from cancer, me with my bumpy career as a writer. We'd had enough of everything and said, fuck it, let's try this again. Kind of a mulligan for your 40s. We never had any children, so picking up and moving wasn't a problem. I could always write anywhere, and we'd found a good oncologist up in Seattle. Tired of the dry desert heat of Phoenix, we decided to try the Puget Sound. We found a great little place on Skagit Bay, close enough for Ellie's treatments in the city, but far enough away to give us some space. It was an old farmhouse right on Skagit River, a small two-story, three-bedroom affair, but big enough for the two of us and with plenty of land for Jellybean and Frankie, our cats. It's a funny thing about these old houses. Everything is always so small. Were people tiny then, or are we giants now? Tiny rooms, tiny doorways, tiny drawers, tiny terrors. Even people's problems must have been smaller back then. The previous owner had a career in medicine. She ran studies out of one of the labs at the University of Washington. Pharmaceuticals, I think. Maybe research. I guess she got tired of living so far away from work and decided to sell. It was perfect for us. We arrived in fall, and the weather fit the property perfectly. Coffee in the mornings by the water, spay casting for steelhead in the afternoons. Oftentimes, we would go down to the bay and watch for one of the local orca pods. The locals in town said J-Pod was through here a few weeks ago. I spent most of my time in my study smoking my pipe and disappointing my publisher. Ellie had decided to rescue the raised beds out back and made a project out of it. She said by next summer we should have a good produce garden. Frank and Beans, the cats, were always out doing whatever it is cats do when they aren't sleeping. Yeah, we were settling in nicely. 
One afternoon, Ellie was in the backyard, slowly tending to her newly sprouting plants, and I took a break from not writing to watch her for a moment. I could tell that the treatments had really slowed her down, and I looked forward to her strength returning, which the doctors promised would happen in time. Healthy Ellie would have practically danced her way around the yard, weeding and watering with the energy of an 80s sitcom teenager. This slowly recovering version of my wife seemed content enough with her hands in the dirt, but was slow and methodical, almost like her body and limbs were led as she dipped her trowel into the earth and patted the area around the base of a newly added plant. I pulled a couple of beers out of the fridge, desperate for an excuse not to be able to work for the rest of the afternoon, knowing full well that Ellie would just have a sip or three, but some time with my wife sounded heavenly all of a sudden. She smiled when she saw me and got up without a word, dusting her hands off on her jeans and following me to the set of Adirondack chairs with the best view of the river, and we sank into the contented semi-silence that happens after enough years in a relationship. We chatted about my progress, or lack thereof, of Ellie's frustrations with the snap pea plants, or lack thereof, and sure enough, Ellie had one tentative sip of her beer before setting it aside and sinking into the comfort of the cool Washington breeze instead. We sat in silence and the breeze died down after a couple of minutes, and then suddenly we heard the strangest sound, like someone taking a sharp intake of breath from between clenched teeth. We both jumped and turned our heads toward the source of the sound, and sure enough, there was an older and slightly disheveled man standing on just the other side of our tall fence, face perfectly framed by a slightly wider gap in the fence boards. He looked like he was in his mid to late 60s, and not unlike most of the middle-aged men we ran into around town. He wore slightly dirty jeans that were slightly too big, a button-up flannel despite the unseasonably warm air, and a baseball cap, which seemed to be part of the local uniform. Jesus Christ, I said despite myself. I didn't want to be rude to our new neighbor, but what a strange way to introduce yourself. You two are not right, he said, his head moving closer to the fence, so we were mostly just able to see his large mouth and yellowing teeth. Uh, I beg your pardon, I asked, moving to the edge of my seat and straightening my back in defense of his words. Nope, you're not right at all. He doubled down, shifting his head back so his eyes appeared, darting between Ellie and I. It's too bad, he said in an almost whisper. It's really too bad. He is fine, but she is all wrong, he said and turned his full attention to Ellie. Ellie let out a strangled sob and looked over to me to do something, but I sat totally frozen, unable to react or really comprehend what exactly was happening. Don't cry, pretty Ellie he soothed in the least soothing possible manner. I'm not, she responded, a bit of her typical fighting spirit shining through. Oh, he said, taking a small step back. You will. You'll be crying. Very soon. And with that, he turned and darted off with unbelievable speed considering his age. I finally snapped out of my stupor and charged the fence, screaming, What the fuck did you just say? As I spanned the few feet between our chairs and where he'd been standing, but he was long gone, and I couldn't see any sign of him through the awkward angle of the fence boards. I turned to Ellie, who was visibly shaking and not quite crying, but certainly looked close. What the fuck? she said, eyes wide and unbelieving. Who was that? Don't worry, honey. 
I attempted to reassure her. He was probably some mentally ill fisherman or camper or something that's just passing through. That was weird, no doubt, but I'm sure it was nothing. But he knew my name, she insisted, and I flinched, hoping she hadn't caught that terrifying detail. Should we call the police? She sat up straight and started feeling for her phone, suddenly wild and terrified. And say what? I said, moving toward her and reaching my arms out. A weird guy came by and was super weird and then left? I took her in my arms and tried to calm her down, but she was stiff, clearly miles away from becoming anywhere near calm. How about that he threatened us and he knows my name and moves with the speed of a goddamn superhero, she said, nudging me off of her and shaking her head. I'm scared, she said, continuing to shake her head. I am so, so scared. I promise it'll be okay, sweetheart, I said, forcing her back into my embrace. I've got dad's rifle if things get too intense, but I swear he's got to just be a weird drifter. He probably listened to our conversation for a while and then used your name to scare us. He's like an online troll, but old and in the mountains. So this is what he does. The last line got the slightest half laugh out of her and I felt her relax just slightly. You think? She asked meekly. Absolutely, I said forcefully, taking the opportunity she was giving me to help us move on from the bizarre incident. People out here get bored and do shit like that. He probably saw our Subaru and decided to fuck with us. People like him hate people like us, I reassured, and she nodded, relaxing even more. It's going to be fine, I promise, I said, feeling her body fully start to relax next to me. But deep down, I didn't believe my own words. I didn't believe them at all. We managed to have a decent evening, despite the feeling of unease neither of us could really shake. I made my famous fancy ramen, which is just regular ramen with some extra ginger, rice vinegar, and vegetables added. We binged the new Netflix show everyone had been harassing each other about on social media and went to bed, feeling somewhat back to normal and excited for a new day. Then sometime in the early morning, I bolted wide awake the hair standing up on the back of my neck and my breath catching deep in my throat. I surveyed the room from my place on the bed, seeing nothing out of the ordinary in the dim light. I rolled over and checked on Ellie, who was in the middle of one of her famous deep sleeps, one arm thrown over the top of her head, mouth gaping wide but soundless. I was always so damn jealous of her champion-level ability to sleep through anything. I snuck out of bed and stood perfectly still in the middle of our bedroom for a second, trying to pinpoint the source of whatever woke me so suddenly. It hadn't been a sound I could follow, but more like a sudden and distinct terror. Just a feeling, but one unlike anything I'd ever felt before. Something was close, and whatever it was, it was very, very bad. I knew that without a doubt. Instinct drove me to the window and I peered through the curtain, my heart absolutely stopping at what I saw below. On the corner of our property, perfectly illuminated by the security light, was the man from that afternoon. He was standing stick still, staring directly at me, and I felt like he could somehow see right into my eyes, even from the great distance. I wanted to move or call out for help, but I was frozen like before, trying to wrap my mind around why he was standing there in the middle of the night and what he could possibly want from us. Before I could snap out of my stupor, and in half of an instant, the man dropped on the ground and started crawling with an inhuman intensity toward our house. My skin rippled as I realized that he wasn't exactly crawling, 
as his arms and legs were out to the side of him like a demented insect, and he was moving across our lawn with the swiftness of a water bug on a still lake. This realization snapped me to action, and I shouted Ellie's name as I crossed the room toward her and began to shake her awake. Ellie, Ellie, get up. We've got to go, and we have got to go now, I said loudly, but gently, not wanting to send her into a total panic, too. What? she said, bolting up in our bed. What the fuck is going on? She said, instinctively started to get up and search for her glasses, and I grabbed her by the arm and started dragging her toward the door. No time for that, I warned, dropping my voice to almost a whisper. We've got to run. She listened terrified. We made it to the bedroom door, but it was too late. Our life, as we knew it, was over in that moment. We were powerless to stop it. By the time we reached our bedroom door, he was standing in it, leaning against the door jamb with a knowing smirk on his face like he'd been casually waiting for a friend for several minutes. Get the fuck out of here, Ellie screamed. Oh, I will, he said, but you're coming with me. The fuck she is, I screamed and lunged for him, certain I could overpower his middle-aged frame. But I was wrong. I was so devastatingly wrong. Without even standing fully upright, the man swung at me with his right arm, and the force he hit me with sent me careening across the room, where I slammed against the wall, almost losing consciousness for a moment. As I waited for the dizziness to pass and my vision to clear, I heard the man say, You, Ellie, you've got to go. This is all wrong. He has to stay, but you're coming with me. Followed by very brief sounds of a tussle, and then my vision cleared, and I saw my beautiful sweet wife in the horrifying grips of that man, if I could even call him a man. Her eyes were wide and unblinking, and I could tell she couldn't call out, even if she wanted to. The man caught my gaze and stared deep into my eyes and said, But you stay here. Don't you dare try to leave. You don't want to know what will happen if you try to leave. Don't ever, ever leave. And before I could get to my feet or protest, the man bolted down the stairs, carrying my limp wife in his arms. I'd never seen a human being move so quickly, and if I'd had time to think about it longer, I doubt I'd come up with many animals I'd seen move that fast either. Feeling like I was moving underwater, I made it to my feet and downstairs where the front door was wide open, but they were both nowhere to be found. The house held the distinct feeling of emptiness besides me standing there. And when I walked onto the porch and looked out into the light of the now rising sun, I again saw nothing. The air smelled like the air only does at 5 a.m., and the world felt perfect and still, except that, in my case, my world had just been ripped to shreds. I ran around the perimeter of the house in a blind panic, hoping for the slightest glimpse of the horrible man-thing or my wife, but there was nothing. Just endless stillness. I called the police who launched a massive search and questioned all of our neighbors, hoping to track down the strange, aging man who had slithered into my home like a deranged Spider-Man and taken my wife God knows where. I wasn't the slightest bit surprised when none of my neighbors matched his description, but the man returned, day after day. At first he'd show up between the fence posts, just like he had the first day, grinning and staring but saying nothing, even when I screamed and begged him to bring Ellie home. I called the police, but of course he was gone by the time they got there, and they never found any clues or witnesses who could help them identify who my supernatural stalker could be. Day after day, he'd return, 
sometimes peering through the fence, sometimes watching my bedroom from the street below, and I'd always call the cops, but he'd always be gone by the time they arrived. It didn't take long for them to stop showing up altogether, and when it was becoming clear that they weren't going to find any sign of my wife or foul play, the case dwindled until it was all but cold. I never left my property after my wife was taken. Not once. I never stepped a foot over the property line. It was easy to pretend it was agoraphobia triggered by the trauma of my wife's abduction, but in reality I knew in my bones that I just couldn't leave. The thought of going to wherever that thing would take me was enough to keep me in my place, but the further fear of something happening to Ellie because I disobeyed the man's demented commands was what truly kept me from breaking his rules. The fleeting hope that she was alive somewhere, and that maybe, just maybe, I'd see her again, kept me home and spending hours on the internet searching for some clues as to what the fuck had just come into our lives and destroyed everything we knew to be true. I typed in every combination of bug, man, abduction, housebound that I could think of and found a few creepypastas and Reddit threads that had bits and pieces of overlap to my story, but nothing that explained what my world had become. Nothing came close to explaining the claustrophobic horror I was experiencing. I knew I'd be safe if I never left the house, but what kind of life is that? It was a strange, isolated repetition that I was too terrified to invite anyone else into, and was equally terrified to try to stay in, alone, forever. When I wasn't on the internet, I was tending to Ellie's garden, slightly comforted by the repetitive tasks of weeding and harvesting, able to feel the tiniest bit closer to her in those moments. My days of writing were completely over, I knew that for sure. A couple of weeks after the abduction, I broke up with my agent over text, knowing with 100% certainty that I would never be mentally sound enough to write ever again. I was too consumed with the devastating combination of grief, fear, confusion, and isolation to think any real thoughts, let alone put together the words and sentences that constitute a best-selling novel. As the days and weeks wore on, one issue started looming large over my sad daily routine. I knew I could never leave the house if there was any chance of seeing my wife again, let alone maintaining the weak thread of sanity I was holding on to but my savings was dwindling, and pretty soon I'd have no way to cover the large mortgage that comes with a riverside home in the coveted Pacific Northwest. At one point, we'd been close to wealthy after my first two novels had been a success, but Ellie's hospital bills and the cost of acupuncture, organic meals, and any other treatment or tincture we thought could possibly help her had dwindled our earnings over time. We hadn't been worried about it as the numbers in our account dropped over the months, Knowing my next novel would buoy us back up, but with no source of income, I'd soon have no way to pay to stay in the home my life so desperately depended on. So I scoured the house for a place to hide, and I found the perfect spot in a sort of blind spot under the stairs in the basement. I fashioned a secret room under those stairs, confident I could hide and survive once the home was foreclosed on and was no longer mine. I canned and preserved some of Ellie's vegetables and stored them in that secret room. I lined the walls with water bottles that I'd have to sneak upstairs to refill once I knew the new owner's routines. I made a space for a small bed, and I'm memorizing my home, figuring out the best ways I'll be able to move around when the owners go out, and I pray every night that they don't end up working from home. I'm not sure how long it will be until the house is no longer mine, but I'll be ready when that day comes. 
I recently found a wad of blankets and some water bottles and some wrappers in the crawl space, so I'm guessing I'm not the first one to be given this prison sentence. I wonder if they're still here, hiding expertly, or if their claustrophobia and curiosity eventually got the best of them. I'm sure I'll know more sooner than later. I'm writing this all down and plan to post it as my last resort when the time is right. I don't know when that time will be, but best case, maybe it will help me break out of this awful existence, and at the very least it could help someone else. My life is as awful as it sounds, even more awful if I'm being honest, but I don't have a choice. I know I can never leave. I can never, ever, ever leave. truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.